uh, I did a Bible school two years ago every uh, in the evenings, and we did it on pursuing revival. And so I studied a lot of books. I think I read 15 books on revival, and we prayed every time we got together. And and, um, and when the school was over, I missed that season, that, that impact that that had. And then the Lord just spoke to me and said, you can do that in the churches. So I began this year by doing that, and we started on January 1st in a in a very large church, and we prayed for the first four days of the year, and then, then I went immediately to another church and started the next night, and we prayed for, for another two or three nights, and I've been doing it whenever I have opportunity like this, and one of the pastors called me back, and he said, listen, we... Um, we were going to go back to small groups on Wednesday nights, but I told the church we're going to keep praying. And he said they stood up and applauded. He said they've never done that. <laughs> so, And he was so excited about the momentum. When God's in something, there's just an unction to do it and an unction to, to, to get it done. And so I was able to, to take the scripture. I wrote an article. I had all the students write an article on revival praying. We called it revival praying. Um, um, a necessity or a waste of time? Is it really important to pray for revival or is that just a waste of time? Is God going to do what he's going to do anyway? Or is he, is he moved, motivated um, by our prayers? And if you believe the Bible, you have to believe that God is moved by prayer. Uh, Jesus wouldn't have spent that much time praying. And Paul certainly spent a lot of time praying. And he was a busy person, wasn't he? You know, the biggest excuse for people not to pray is they don't have time because we are busy. But Paul was busy. He was starting the New Testament church and writing the Bible and being thrown in jail and having shipwrecks and all the things that he went. And yet he prayed constantly. So if prayer wasn't important, he would have left that off. But it is. And so I was able to prove, I believe, and, and, and I was able to show that prayer is really the catalyst for every revival that's ever happened in our history and and every revivalist you know i've studied a lot of different revivals a lot of different books on revival and the one thing that everybody agrees on is that prayer was crucial that it came in answer to prayer and it's hard to get at that many people to agree on anything but they all agreed on that and so i i can show you from history where where it's it's it was important i can show you in the bible where prayer made a difference and 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 the and the Lord spoke to me at the beginning of this year and said, "Prove it, prove it." In other words, if it makes a difference, then show show the difference, because there are people today, there are camps in the body of Christ that teach that prayer is not important, that prayer for revival is not important. We already have revival, and you just have to just take it. Well, if we have it, I'd like to know where it is. Uh, it's not what I want to see. And and so I, I don't know about you, but I want more. I want to see more for my generation. I want to see more for for my lifetime, for my nation. And I believe God, he's done more as far as doing doing just outstanding visitations. He's done it in the past, and I believe he can do it again. How many of you believe that? And a lot of the problems that people are trying to solve would be solved if there was massive Revival, massive awakening, and really a better term for it might be awakening. It's it's really when lost people begin to wake up and realize they're lost, and then they begin to look for a savior, and uh, and the church, which can get apathetic and distracted, 
gets revived and gets on fire again. And so that's really, um, I'll give you some scripture for that, but that's what I want. I want to see God move. And, 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 you know, people have said, well, do you think this is the last generation? I believe there's going to be a great harvest of souls before this is over. And people say, well, do you think this is the last one? Well, it's our last one. This, this one's ours. And, and if God's going to do something in this generation, it's going to be directly a direct result of what the church desires, what the church prays. You know, the biggest secret in the world is the church gets what the church wants. And if 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 what we want is is buildings and money and and, you know, what we got all that, we, we did it. You, you know, back when we all started, it was. I remember your building that I first went to, and and uh, thank God you moved out of that one. And, um, but but there was back in the eighties there was just just thousands of storefront churches that started. Remember those days? We got into the storefronts and and you know and in rented places and, and and set up metal chairs and we had overheads that you'd write on the transparency and put it on. You remember? And they were they were charismatic choruses. They weren't, you know, hymns, and they weren't so involved as they are nowadays. They were just little choruses, and we'd sing them, and we were so happy. Then they called us a cult, and, and uh, you know, but, but we prayed, and we believed God. We believed God for, 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 for growth. We believed God for buildings. We believed God for money. We believed God, and we got it. Now we just need to turn it around and say, Lord, we want the fire back. We want the power. We want the glory. We want the influence that we once had. The church has lost her voice, and we need to get it back. I believe we will. I believe God's going to, only God can do it. Prayer is not begging God to do something he doesn't want to do. It's not overcoming reluctance in God. We're not going to say, God, please move on America. And he's going to go, no, I don't really want to. Please, God, do it. And no, that's not how it is. P- really, prayer is releasing God to do what God already wants to do. But he's not going to do it unless somebody asks. You know, God moves in answer to prayer. He didn't save you until you asked to be saved, did he? And he won't move on a nation unless the nation rises up and says, move on us. He's not going to butt in. He gives everybody their life to live and and a free will. And he won't override that. And he won't even influence people if somebody doesn't ask. And that's our job. We're the church. This is something Paul Bilheimer, who wrote a book called Destined for the Throne, he, he wrote this. He said, God never goes over the head of his church to enforce his decisions. He will not take things out of her hands. To do so would sabotage his training program. He'll do nothing in the realm of human redemption until the church accepts her responsibility and uses her prerogative of intercession. If she will not pray, God will not act. Another uh, writer on prayer said this, The greatest thing anyone can do for God or man is to pray. That's why... I say, if you care about our country, if you're tired of worrying about it and griping about it, let's do something about it. Let's pray. And we can do that. And and, and it's different. I mean, I spent a whole year doing that in school. But every time we would come together and pray, and it didn't have to be a long time, but you would leave thinking, man, we did something. That was different. It's it's, it's, It's like we're not feeding, which is 
really what we need in church services. We need to get fed. But when you pray, it's like you exercised. It's like you pushed back. It's like you actually expended some energy and did something, and it feels good. Then you can look the world in the eye and think, you know what, I'm doing what I can do for you. I'm praying. And when God answers my prayers, the world's going to be a different place. You're going to be different. You're going to feel the impact. S.D. Gordon, another statement that he made about prayer. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Ian Bounce says, God shapes the world by prayer. Now I'll read this to you and then I'm going to give you some history. But Charles Finney was one of the greatest revivalists of all time. He lived in the 1800s, and his ministry was here in America. And there was a lot of prayer that went along with it, and I won't go into all that. But he had revivals in, um, you know, middle uh, 1800s America that changed cities. He had a revival in Atlantic City, and they estimate when that revival was over, there was only 50 people left that weren't saved. Isn't that great? They had to count by how many didn't get saved. They, they estimate that his converts, when they, return, when they came to God, when they came to Jesus, 80% of them remained true to God. Today it's about 10%. And so he knew something about revival. It, it was amazing. He would go into places that would be resistant to the gospel and he'd preach and pray until people fell on their faces. He said he would have so much authority and so much anointing he had to whisper lest he just knock the people off their seats. We need some power like that. He said this, Prayer is an essential link in the chain of causes that lead to revival, as much so as truth is. Some have zealously used truth to convert men and laid very little stress on prayer. They've preached and talked and distributed tracts with great zeal. And then they wondered that they had so little success. And the reason was they forgot to use the other branch of the means effectual prayer they overlook the fact that truth by itself will not produce the effect without the spirit of god and that the spirit is given in answer to prayer isn't that clear so there's two means of reaching people one is preaching the gospel the other's prayer and i think if you could sum up today's church if you were going to look at the body of christ as a whole today it would be, uh, one word to describe it would be prayerlessness. We're good at things. We're good at social media and we're good at whatever. There's been a lot of things that have changed over the years and the church has adapted or whatever. But I think in the, in the process, we lost that, that, that commitment to pray, that spirit of prayer, that the, the, the intensity of prayer. And we need to get it back. Because there are things that prayer will do that nothing else will do. He's saying here you can't just preach and share the truth by itself and expect it to do everything. In Ephesians 4 it says that they were alienated, lost people. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. How many of you knew they were ignorant? That means they don't know. But it says through the ignorance is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So we're dealing with two problems here. If they were just ignorant, you could tell them about Jesus and they'd go, oh, I didn't know that. 
Let's pray. But how many of you know that doesn't happen? Why? Because they're not just ignorant, they're also blind. So truth, the gospel will solve the problem of ignorance, but it's the move of the Spirit in answer to prayer that opens their eyes. And when their eyes are opened, anybody can give them the truth and they'll get saved. But what we've done is tried to train preachers to preach better, louder, softer, be more like the world, less like the world, quicker. You know, we've shortened it, lengthened it, whatever, made it more polished, taken out offensive. We try to do everything through the preaching. But that's just half of the outreach. There's prayer that must be prayed. There was a, a, a story about a, a revival in, in uh, Northern Ireland where <clears throat> it was a two-room, two-story two schoolhouse. And all the grades were in this schoolhouse. It's kind of a country school. And uh, in the downstairs were the boys, and the upstairs were the girls. And this little boy, he's about seven or eight years old, he was become became real um, uneasy and unfit. It just described him as unfit for studies. He, he was, the teacher thought he was sick. He couldn't focus. He was just distraught. And she had an older boy in the class to take him home. And they left, and off they went. They came back, and and as they, because as they were going home, the older boy, who was a Christian, began to ask him, "What's wrong?" And as he shared, he realized this boy isn't saved, and he's under conviction. Does anybody even know what conviction is anymore? It's like our whole society has made that politically incorrect. Like we've got to tell people what they want to hear, even if it's wrong, and, and not ever make anybody uncomfortable. If you're going to hell, you ought to be uncomfortable. If you're not, somebody didn't do their job. We don't want the world to just go through life without any warning whatsoever that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. As as Pastor said, I, I was preaching on hell this week in Bible school. I haven't done that before. But we've lost this idea of hell. Did you know that what we do wouldn't be so urgent? It wouldn't be so important? It wouldn't matter if people agreed with us or not if it weren't for hell. But there's a hell and people go there every day. And so this boy was under conviction that we need conviction back. Bring conviction back. And conviction happens when the spirit moves on someone and shows them how lost they are. You remember that? Did you ever get under conviction? realize I'm not fit I'm not right I need I need help I need to get right with God and so this little boy was under conviction they'd been praying revival had just about broken out in that part of the world so the the older boy led him to Jesus and he he got saved on the way home and I'll tell you how saved he got he got so saved that he said there's nothing wrong with me I can go back to school <laughs> how many of you would have taken the day off <laughs> I would have just gone ahead. But he went back to school with the older They went back to school. They walked into the schoolroom. The teacher said, well, what are you doing back here? He said, oh, teacher, I'm so happy. I have Jesus in my heart. And when he said those words, conviction fell on the boys. And the boys began to cry. 
And they began to weep. And they began to call on God. And they began to get saved. And it was so loud, the girls upstairs heard them. And the girls came down, and when they came down, they got under conviction. And the whole schoolhouse was surrounded outside by little boys and girls bowing on their knees and praying and getting saved. People were walking by, and they heard the noise. And when they came and they crossed the threshold, they got under conviction. And they got saved. And a great revival broke out in that schoolhouse because one little boy got under conviction. And undoubtedly, somebody had been praying. Things like that don't just happen. We got to make a choice. And I'm, I'm making it myself, I have to admit. I like American life. I like the, the luxuries that we have today. I like all the conveniences and all the time savers. And I like it. But we've got to, we've got to realize what's at stake here and take some of our precious time and use it to pray that God would move on our nation like he's moved in the past. The church today has to realize that we're the only thing that stands between our generation and an eternal hell. And we need to go to God and say, Lord, have mercy on our, on our, on our friends and on our enemies. Have mercy on our nation. Have mercy on our generation. Don't give them what they deserve. But have mercy and move on them. Draw them to yourself. Send laborers into the harvest field. Cause people to hear and accept the truth. And get, get saved like we did. And if we'll do it, we'll have no regrets. God will answer our... But we're going to do it tonight. Now listen, this isn't a practice run. When we pray, God hears. You have to realize... I went up to my prayer room at home. I, I got a, 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 an office that I converted into a prayer room. So, well, how did you convert it? Well, I soundproofed it. <laughs> I don't want everybody in the office building hearing me pray. And so I've made it so that they can't hear me. And, and uh, so I went up and I spent several hours up there praying. And I was getting on the elevator to go down. And then the Spirit spoke to me. It was kind of a teaching session. He says, what have you been doing? I said, I've been praying. He said, did it do any good? Did it, did it help? Well, I mean, I'm not going to walk outside and the world's not going to fall on their face and say, thank you for praying. We're different now. The news isn't going to come on and say, the world is a different place because Greg was spent three hours in prayer. That's not going to happen. And with the answer that came out of my spirit, what have you been doing, praying? Did it do any good? The answer was, it did as much good as prayer can do. In other words, prayer doesn't do everything. But there are certain things that it does that nothing else will do. And that base has to be covered if we're going to be successful at doing our job in these last days. This city needs somebody to pray for them. This nation needs the church to pray. I don't think it's an accident that you're praying on Wednesday nights. I don't think it's an accident that churches and people are getting together to pray. I believe it's time. How many of you believe it's time? You know, protesting and arguing and yelling and shouting, that's not going to make a difference. But if we can pray and loose laborers into the harvest fields, things can really change from the inside out. I want to read this to you. This is some of the history of our country. And I think you'll enjoy this. Uh, and I, I think it's worth taking the time. 
as I did my, uh, pers- we called our Bible school, um, we, we said the theme was pursuing revival. And we spent the whole year doing this, studying different areas, different revivals that had happened. Because if God's done it before, he can do it again. And these things are not fantasy. This is fact. This actually happened. And it happened. Revivals happen in places that didn't look possible. In fact, the worse the area looked, the more powerful God would move in that area. When people, What I'm saying is our nation is ripe for this. It is so ready for this. Can you say amen? amen. I can see that Muslims could be saved. Groups that have been radically opposed to the church can be saved. Gay, lesbian groups can have the power of God hit them. You know, I feel so I feel so badly for those people, and I know some of them. But they're so they they've been so active at trying to shove their agenda down our throat and get us to condone their behavior, legalize their behavior, be okay with our behavior, and they're fighting this fight, and they've forgotten to ask themselves, "Are you even happy?" Are you are you satisfied? Do you have any peace? Do you have any joy? Are you right with God? Listen, as we go forward, let's re- just remember this. We're not here to argue intellectually. Preach to the heart and realize this, no matter how wicked or 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 hardened or adamant people are on the outside, Inside every person is an eternal being with a soul and a heart. And that being can recognize truth. We preach to the heart. Not the head, but the heart. So when they stand up and say, there is no God, we say, would you like to know him? I'm not going to argue the fact that there's... That that's, that's, I'm going to talk to the heart. You want to know God? You want peace? You want forgiveness? There's no life after death. There's no heaven. There's no hell. Would you like to go to heaven? I can tell you how. It's possible. You can make peace with God. You see the difference? I'm not going to get all bent out of shape over it, but preach to the heart. There are certain things that are obvious and their heart will recognize it. And what your words may be the words that convert someone or it may just be a seed that's planted. But don't ever think you've lost the battle. Because what we have is truth. What we're saying is right. What we're doing is, is, is real. And really our side's already won. Jesus is already won. So we have full authority to preach the gospel with confidence. There was an unprecedented moral slump following the American Revolution. This is 1775 to 1783 during that time frame. Drunkenness was epidemic. Out of a population of 5,300,000 were confirmed drunkards. Profanity was of the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of the American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night and bank robberies were a daily occurrence. You know, we don't even have that here now. I mean, things are bad, but you know, things have been bad before. In 1794, conditions reached their worst. A Baptist minister 
named Isaac Bacchus, known as much for his praying as for his exhorting, had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And the impression left upon him was this. There's only one power on earth that commands the power of heaven, prayer. So this is just a a, a nominal, unknown guy who's a preacher. And he got this word from God about prayer. He wrote a pamphlet. And he called it, real, real imaginative guy, he called it a plea for prayer for revival of religion. That was the title of his pamphlet. A plea for prayer for revival. He mailed it to ministers of every denomination in the United States. He pleaded for the pastor to set aside the first Monday of each month. This is one day a month. You're already praying every Wednesday. He just asked one day a month to set aside for uh, just open the church and let people come and pray extraordinary prayer for revival. As the people humbled themselves and began to cry unto God, God poured upon them the spirit of supplication. That's not revival. That's a spirit of prayer. There's literally a spirit of prayer where people really get into prayer and prayer comes and then they want to pray. How many of you know we need that? Just bring that so that you'd rather pray than anything else. You're looking for time to spend praying and you want to be in that place with God with all of your heart. This is a prerequisite for burning, believing, prevailing, persuading, persevering, revival, praying. This united prayer effort instigated by one lone man brought the wealth, strength, and supply of heaven down to the aid of finite mankind. In 1798, revival fires began to burn. And New England churches couldn't accommodate those who are inquiring about salvation. News of this outpouring of God's Holy Spirit filtered westward. It was mightily uh, fanned the flames of faith revival in the heart of a staid Presbyterian minister named James McGreedy. So this revival happened on the East Coast because this Isaac Bacchus decided to get people to pray. And then James McGreedy got affected by it. James McGreedy had forsaken the comforts of a ministry in Pennsylvania, and he felt the call of God to accept a pastor of three small churches in Logan County, Kentucky. In those days, Kentucky was the Wild West. Did you know that? Because the country just hadn't been developed. So Kentucky was the frontier. And uh, and he went to Kentucky. It was, the, it was just primitive. And... Uh, in an entry in his diary said that uh, in addition to praying the first day of uh, Monday of each month, I insisted my people also spend Saturday at sunset and Sunday at sunrise in prayer for revival. Even though revival was going on back east, McGreedy's area in Kentucky, Logan County was rough. It was otherwise known as Rogues Harbor, a stream of murderers, robbers, horse thieves, and uh, went there to escape punishment from the Union. They'd crossed the Allegheny Mountains and settled in southwestern Kentucky. The court of justice had not been conducted there in five years. The outlaws were the majority. The vigilantes, or a group of uh, law-abiding citizens, formed a group called vigilantes. 
and uh, they called themselves the regulators. They engaged the rogues in a gunfight and knife fight, and they lost. Therefore, the rogues drove the regulators out of the community, so the bad guys took over. There were just two notable classes, the wild, jeering, cursing, drinking frontiersmen and a small upper class of law-abiding but agnostic citizens. In June of 1800, uh, uh, Pastor McGreedy was said uh, to have had such an ugly face, because that's where he went to preach, was in this area. He was said to have such an ugly face that the rogues would stop him and say, with a face like that, you must be a man with a message. And he was. The message came from God. He decided to call a four-day observance of the Lord's Supper. It was um, the third year he had had it in this area in Kentucky. Just a four-day. Everybody's going to come in. We're going to have a four-day observance of communion. This is, you know, during the time they were doing all this praying. In June of 1800, a multitude, for seemingly no reason, came to his small church, Red River Presbyterian. On the final day of this solemn occasion, having instructed the people to examine themselves for three days, a Methodist preacher named John McGee was asked to preach. He observed that the people were breaking up. They were crying and weeping and crying out. He politely went and spoke to a lady about regaining her composure. In other words, he didn't think that was appropriate. And, uh, you, you know, these people, uh, Presbyterians, are much for order. They will not bear this confusion. Go back and be quiet. And uh, it didn't work. The Methodist, John McGee, knew that this was a genuine visitation of God's Holy Spirit. And uh, he continued, he convinced Pastor McGreedy uh, to, to, to just leave it alone. And together they decided to call for a second observance of the Lord's Supper a month later at another one of McGreedy's churches, a Gasper River Presbyterian. This was July of 1800. Unprecedented numbers began arriving. A multitude estimated at 11,000 people came to his tiny church. The largest city in Kentucky at that time was Lexington. It had a population of 1,800. People came from everywhere to this little church in the country in this dangerous area to seek God. Since some had come from as far as 100 miles, no one had the heart to tell them to go home. A multitude prompted uh, extemporaneous improvisions. Outdoor services were convened. People camped out. Wagons were used to bring in tents and bedrolls and bare necessities. Thus, God gave birth to the first camp meeting. It was a literal camp meeting where they came and stayed for days. This glorious disarray with which God blessed those early frontiersmen and women out on the prairie is described by Pastor McGreedy. He said the cries of the distress arose almost as loud as McGee's voice. Here awakening and converting work was to be found in every part of the multitude, even something strangely and wonderfully new to me. People lay prostrate on the ground. Another pastor, a uh, 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 protege of McGreedy, this guy named Barton Stone, pastored two Presbyterian churches northeast of Lexington. Stone visited these communion services, and he was moved by what he saw. When Stone came back to his place, 
He wanted to go ahead and have his own prayer emphasis at Cane Ridge. Now we're getting into some things that are just famous, historical. Cane, it's called the Cane Ridge Revival. This is another country church, country preacher that got infected by this McGreedy. And in August in 1801, in response to Pastor Stone's invitation to come for a four-day meeting, 20 to 25,000 people crowded around a little church building. Masses of humanity could be seen for what looked like miles on the sparsely populated frontier. The people were sectioned off into groups, and ministers of all denominations uh, had been invited, and they were drafted into service. From trees and stumps and wagon beds, preachers exhorted and continuously, day and night, 24 hours a day, they preached to get the people saved. A Methodist circuit rider said this, I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time, some on stumps and others in wagons. Some of the people were singing, others were praying, and some were crying for mercy. I stepped up on a log where I could have a better view of the surging humanity. The noise was like the roar of Niagara. And at one time, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment of time as if a thousand guns had been opened on them. They just fell out in the spirit. Isn't that amazing? This is in the worst part of our country, in, the, in rogues in, where there was outlaws. And I'll get to the, the punchline here. The whole frontier caught fire. It was set ablaze with drunkards, horse thieves, gamblers, cockfighters, and murderers who had taken who had partaken of amazing grace. Every revived American frontiersman became an evangelist. With the frontier radically transformed, many felt the call to move westward. You'll never see this in the history books or on the movies, you know. But here's what it said. As trains of caravans, wagons, and horses made their way toward California, hymns could be heard from the covered wagons and each night some frontiersmen would preach camp meeting on the prairie these once cursing and jeering wild men were tamed by the power of god and they took the west for christ instead of gambling and cursing and vice spirituality and genuine christianity characterized the early westward movement it was god's great hour this happened in our country There were other people who went back to these areas after this revival where there'd been so much crime and they said it was completely transformed by the power of God. We can't change our nation politically just with votes, people in Washington. We need this. How many of you know if God did it before, he can do it again? One thing I've learned in, in really studying revival and one of the things that's frustrated me is I've read all these books and, and they'll tell you how they pray, how often they prayed and you saw it there every one Monday of the month or every Saturday night or every Sunday morning. And William Seymour prayed for the Azusa Street Revival and he said he'd pray, you know, four and a half hours a day. Whatever he prayed, four hours a day, six hours a day. All of them talk about, but they never tell you what they prayed. It's so frustrating. What did they pray? And, and, and it's strangely blank. And I, and I finally discovered why. Because every generation has specific needs. 
And if God gave us uh, their report on how they prayed, we'd try to duplicate it and it would turn into some ritual and it would lose its power. People who knew less than us, who had less time than us, who were much less educated than us, did this with less knowledge and it worked for them. It's not rocket science. If it worked for them, it'll work for us. If God answered their prayers, he'll answer our prayers. Get bold enough to pray to God as if he's going to hear you and answer you. Nobody goes to God in their own name. All of us go in the name of Jesus. That means you have as much influence with God as any other person who's ever lived. That means you have a say about what God does in your family, in your city, in your nation, in your generation. You have something to say about it. Remember when when the Lord went to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it? Remember what he did first? He stopped by Abraham's house. Remember that? And Abraham says, where are you going? He said, I'm going down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He set him up. He set Abraham up. Abraham thought he was just being nosy, but God meant for Abraham to know. And then Abraham says, well, wait a minute. I'm not, I don't want you to go down and destroy Sodom. What if there was 50 righteous? Would you spare the city if there was 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do anything unjust. And you know what the Lord said? I'll spare the city for 50 righteous because you asked me. Remember, he kept praying. He said, oh, don't be displeased with me. God wasn't displeased with him. You see, in God's mind, he's not going to let something major happen without getting input from his partner, his friend, his covenant friend. Are you with me? The Lord, God wants to know, what, what do you want? What do you want for your city? What do you want for your nation? And he expects us to step up to the plate. That's why I, I love redemption and I was so glad to get my book in print because redemption will teach you how to act in the presence of God. We know all this so that we can go boldly to the presence of God and we can ask him for things as if we belong there because we do through Jesus. It's the Bible that says, come boldly to the throne of grace. God wants to know what you think. What do you want? And if all we're focused on is, God, help me pay my bills, help me pay off my car, help my kids stay right and get through college. If that's all we pray about, that's all God's going to do in our lives. But we can pray big prayers and release God beyond our borders, beyond our family, beyond our city. And God will hear it. If anybody else could, could do it, we can do it. What did an old-time Presbyterian minister know about prayer? Very little. What did an old-time Methodist know? Very little. I mean, he wrote a pamphlet called A Plea for Prayer for Revival. That's, I mean, do you know how long we try to come up with titles today? Because people won't read something if it sounds so simple as that. But that's, that's, and it was probably not very long. It's just like, would you guys pray on Monday, the first Monday of the month? It didn't even tell them what to pray. They just got together and they began to call on God. And God answered their prayer. If he did it for them, he'll do it for us. Amen. I want to give you a couple of New Testament promises. And then we're going to pray. The reason I want to give you this is because 
And I have a, a sheet that we could, I could give you to print out if you'd like some scriptures. It's nice to have some scriptures to pray because you want to keep your, when you pray with the understanding, you want to keep your mind engaged. You know what I'm saying? You don't just want to get on autopilot. You want to keep your mind engaged. And the most effective prayers in the world are praying the word of God back to God. So I have some Old Testament promises and New Testament promises, and those are very helpful as you're praying uh, to pray those out and use those as the as the blueprint for your prayer. And uh, you know, and then there's praying in the spirit. And a lot of these guys never prayed in the spirit; they weren't spirit filled. I don't know how they prayed for hours on end without praying in the Holy Ghost, but. Evidently they did, but man, when you pray in the Holy Ghost, you're praying according to the will of God. You're praying an effectual prayer that is, that is, and and if you're praying for revival and then you start praying in the Holy Ghost, guess what the Holy Ghost came to do? Help us. Help us do what? Whatever it is we're supposed to be doing. Well, if you start praying for revival and then you shift over in other tongues, guess what he's helping you do? Pray for revival. Giving you the words, the exact prayers that need to be prayed to change things. So, uh, let's see if I can. All I did in order to make it simple, I have here five New Testament prayers or that you can use. The first one is Acts 2. And I, you don't have to write all this. You don't have to turn there. But Acts 2 really to me. It kind of gives us a picture. Of what it is we want. And, uh, and, and it says this in verse 16. It said this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall, dream, shall see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. On my men servants and my maid servants I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of God. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want that. Amen. How many of you want that? Signs and wonders and people prophesying, the Holy Ghost poured out. That's just a picture of what, what's really the desire of my heart. And there it is in Scripture. You can pray that and say, Lord, pour out your spirit. You can ask him to do what he said he would do. Acts 3.19. There are people who oppose revival praying. And they say that, you know, there's the word revival is not even in the Bible. But really it is. In Acts 3.19, Peter preached and he said, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing, that word refreshing is revival, may come from the presence of the Lord. Did you know that God's word promises times of revival? Did you know that because he said that, that means that every time, all the time, won't be a time of revival, but there are times when it will. So that means it's going to come in, in seasons. I mean, if you believe we're ready for a season. Now, if God said there would be times of revival, then I don't think it's a stretch to say that the church can go to God and say, Lord, we want a time of revival. You promised us times of revival. We want one now. And you said that you'd give us the desires of our heart. Give us what you promised. Not just for us, 
But for those people out there, listen, folks, we're going to make it. But there are people out there that are so lost and they're so blind and they're so busy and they're so mad and they're so distracted that if we don't have a major awakening, they're not going to make it. I want them to have a chance. How about you? God, revive us. Change us. Pour out your spirit on us. Move in us. Move on our community. Don't give them what they deserve. But have mercy. Open their hearts to the truth. Send labors to speak the truth to them. Jesus said this in Matthew 9.37. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into his harvest. Did you know we can pray that? That's something that we should be praying. Pray for laborers, preachers, and and, and helpers, people that would go out and facilitate harvest. It doesn't have to all be preachers. In fact, everybody is a minister. So everybody has a part in this. But certainly everybody can pray. And then Acts 4.29 and 30, the disciples prayed, Grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy child Jesus. They prayed for signs and wonders. Did it work? In Acts 5 it says, it says uh, signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles. This was Acts 4. In Acts 5 the signs and wonders hit. And they certainly, and they spoke the word of God it says with boldness. Well that's exactly what they prayed. Let us speak the word of God with boldness and, and give us signs and wonders and healing in the name of Jesus. Do you believe we could pray that? Did you know there was a healing revival in this country in the 40s and 50s? Where Or Roberts and many like him were raised up by God to preach the healing message. Did you know God could do that again? That generation's gone, but this one's here. We need God to do something in our day, in our time. I just wanted to give you just to sow the seeds of revival. This is one of my favorites. I'm gonna, those were our five New Testament scriptures, but this is one of my favorites, and it's Old Testament. In fact, two of them here are. It's Isaiah 44, verse 3. He says, I'll pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. What does that say? It says, I'll pour water on him who's thirsty. Did you know you can be that thirsty one? You say, Lord, I'm thirsty. It seems that there's an ebb and a flow. And it takes thirst, emptiness, dissatisfaction to draw on heaven so that God can do something else. He doesn't move when we're, when we're satisfied, when we don't want anymore. But when we get thirsty... When we get, begin to put a demand on, on heaven, then God responds to that. I'll pour water on him who's thirsty and floods on the dry ground. Then Hosea ten twelve. I love this one. It says, sow to yourselves in righteousness and reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground. That's prepare your heart for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness upon you. You can pray that. Lord, I seek you. I 
call upon you. Rain down righteousness upon us. And then Psalm 85, 6 is a prayer for revival. It says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again? Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I'll give you the, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. One scripture, and I don't have it on this list because I didn't want to get too many. But it, it was a, a lament in the Old Testament. It said there was no one to stir himself up to take hold of God. What a sad state of affairs. The Spirit of God looked and there was no one who was willing to stir themselves up to take hold of God. Some of this has to be done by us. We stir ourselves up. We stay hungry. We stay thirsty and cry out to God to do more than He's done in our life before. To reveal Himself to our generation do you believe he could do that? God's not intimidated by Hollywood. He's not intimidated by Washington. He's not, he doesn't feel like the world's gone too far. Nobody's too lost. They can't be reached, saved. God has strategies. I'm convinced he's got divine strategies for this generation. And he'll release them if somebody would ask him to. God can move on cities and states and nations again. And he will if somebody would ask him. The poorest person in the world is a person who's lost and has no one to pray for them. And you may be the only Christian within your family, your relatives. You may be the crazy one, the fanatic, the one that everybody laughs at. But make sure that your family has at least you to pray for them. Cover them in prayer. Maybe you've thought, you know what? My prayers aren't that effective. That's what we pay the pastor for is to pray. No, that's not what we pay the pastor for. You know the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest examples of, of a man of God that there is in history. He prayed for the churches. He prayed and prayed and he told them that he did. He, he told the Thessalonians and the Colossians and Philippians. He told Timothy, I'm praying for you day and night. He told them, I pray. And he told us a little bit about of what he prayed for them in Ephesians and Colossians. We see some of his prayers. But then, did you know what else he did? He wrote letters and said to, to the different ones, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. And it's like, you're the Apostle Paul. Pray for yourself. These are your students. These are your converts. These are lesser experienced lesser knowledge they, they're not apostles and yet he said pray for me you get this picture where Paul's praying for them and they're praying for him it goes this way and then you have this one praying for that one and that one praying for this one and our prayers come together and do things that can't be done otherwise you're needed right now your voice matters your prayers Move things. Something happens in the spirit when we pray. Whether you see it or not. And your prayers can be just as effective as anybody that's ever prayed. 
Isn't that great? So why don't you stand? And I didn't give you this last one. This is a very well-known prayer verse. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Man, I'll take that. I'll take healing for the land. Our, our world is sick. Our society is sick. They're hurting. They're divided. They're confused. They're fighting. And the church has access to the God that can heal our land. If my people who are called by my name. Amen. Abe, hey, would, you, would you go to the keyboard, please? And, and what we're going to do, there's, you know, like I said, I read all these books and I can't, there was nothing standard. There was nothing cookie cutter about this. So that tells me there's just any number of ways to do it. You can't just say, here's how you do this. It, you, you, you could just take the word, pray the word, and you can do it any way you want to. But what I like to do is to start out by praying for our nation. And, uh, you know, the attention's been drawn there, especially through the election season. What a tumultuous time. And it's not over yet. There's a lot of trouble brewing. You just don't know how far it's going to go. But we need to pray for this nation. And not, not as a political prayer, but as a prayer for all the people. We don't need to look at it as one side or the other. We need to pray, God, help them all. There's no one I don't want to reach. Muslims need... Did you know Muslims can be converted? Don't turn your back on Muslims. That's a billion people. They can be saved. Jesus is appearing to Muslims in the Middle East. Why? Because he loves them. I have a friend who is a missionary in secret over there because it's illegal. And they have secret church services, people's homes. And they're trained at what to do if somebody comes so that it, they won't get thrown in jail or worse for, for worshiping Jesus. They're meeting in this house and the knock comes at the door. So everybody scatters and somebody goes to the door. What is it? He said, I want to come to your meeting. And they said, who told you we had a meeting? He said, oh, this, this, uh, we're not having a meeting. He said, no, no, this guy told me to come and come to this meeting. And so that's why I'm here. He said, Who was he? He said, his name was Jesus. Do you know him? He said, yeah, we know him. Come on in. Literally happened. Literally happened. Jesus told this man, go to that meeting. Jesus is appearing to him in the, in, in the nighttime and in dreams. And they're seeing the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection. He loves Muslims. We can't turn on. Listen, don't view the world through a political Amen. prism. We need to have compassion and mercy on all peoples. It's easy to get mad at people. You know, all this illegal immigration stuff. I hope they get the border fixed. And I hope we build a wall. And I hope that it's all legal and whatever. But you know what? If they don't get it fixed, I'm still not going to hate immigrants. Legal or illegal. I'm going to try to reach him. I want to try to love him. I want him to get Jesus. Amen. Amen. We've got to see this as a world 
thing. 